God now reveals to David his plan for an eternal dynasty. This is the 14th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old current reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 7. 2 Samuel and chapter 7, the first 22 verses. The first 22 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. But the king said unto Nathan, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. It came to pass that that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I've walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things. Wherefore, Thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like Thee, neither is there any God beside Thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
Romans in chapter 1, Paul writing to the church at Rome, the first seven verses, the same spirit that moved the apostle, so did the prophet write, and so does Paul say this. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. David is now poised to advance the kingdom of God in a very public and conspicuous manner for both Israel and the entire world to see by building the house of God for his glory. But this work was not to simply be a single generational work. God is not interested in a single generation building and advancing his kingdom. This was to be a work of generations, generational fidelity. That is essential. It was to be a work which would continue throughout many generations. In fact, the actual building of the temple was not even intended for David, not at all for him, but for his subsequent generations, historically speaking, particularly Solomon. And this is the intention of verses 12 and 13. And when thy days be fulfilled, in other words, David, when you die and you sleep with your fathers, I will set up thy seed, your generation after you, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was the promise that God was giving to David. God here tells David that through his posterity, he will establish the godly kingdom after him. This will be the kingdom of God through David, and not so much the kingdom of God through Solomon, even though it was going to be Solomon's, it was going to be the kingdom of God through his son Solomon and subsequent generations. But it was to be David's kingdom alone. It was to be David's. This was the promise of God to David. From a historical vantage point, one might conclude that the seed referred to by God was David's son Solomon. And purely from a historical vantage point, that would be somewhat the case. And I say somewhat true, since Solomon's dynastic legacy and the establishment of his royal kingdom actually did not last forever. It was temporal. It did not last forever, as the Lord very clearly stated. To be sure, there is a father-son relationship in this declaration. So the question then is, who is God really referring to? God is very clear in his pronouncement that the kingdom which God had in view was going to be an eternal kingdom and not simply a temporary reign by a certain human king. The reference to the seed, as God often uses this phraseology, the seed, your seed, The reference to the seed is a prophetic reference going back to the genesis of God's covenant to redeem a people for himself 
and to build a dynastic kingdom under God through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. That would be the dynasty of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And while David was perhaps interpreting the house that his seed would build as a house of bricks and mortar, God's real intention was not a house of bricks and mortar. It was something completely different. God's intention was to build a spiritual house, an eternal house, one made without hands by the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, the architect and the builder of the eternal tabernacle, which, as we know, is actually the body of Christ, the church. And we know this because this is how the scriptures unravel this idea. Notice the apostle very clearly, and he does this to be very clear. The apostle identifies exactly what the temple is. While many think that the temple is to be bricks and mortar, God is saying, no, that is not the substance. The substance is greater than just bricks and mortar. Notice what the apostle says to the church at Corinth. He writes this, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not, as if to say, aren't you now well aware of all that the prophets had spoken about this temple? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He says this again in chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know ye not? that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? And because this was such an important aspect of the temple, he tells this to the church at Ephesus. To the church at Ephesus, he writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In other words, it's an organism, the temple is an organism, in whom also ye are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Paul is wanting to make sure that we know exactly what the Old Testament temple really was prefiguring. John also gives a definition of the the substantive temple. Notice what he says, John 2.18 and following. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, because they were carnal-minded, they were thinking bricks and mortar, they were thinking unbiblically, not understanding what the temple was really all about, then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and that will rear it up in three days. But he spake, Jesus spake, Jesus spake of the temple of his body. So God is telling David that he is going to build a tabernacle, a temple, which is not made with hands as a physical temple, which decays and fades with time, but rather a temple which is organic, made up of the souls of the redeemed. And this is why the church is likened to a city, as well as the temple of God, or as it is sometimes referred to as the house of God. Not a real city, not a real temple, not a house, but an organism. Note how the Hebrew writer identifies the people of God as the city of God. Notice, we are the city of God whose builder and maker is God himself. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. For he, speaking of Abraham, looked for a city 
which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Not a physical city, but an eternal city. Note how Abraham was not looking for a physical building. He was looking for an eternal habitation, which is Christ and his body, the eternal church. The Hebrew writer elaborates in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 on the eternal nature of the city of God, which is also called the temple of God. Notice Hebrews 12, 22 and Hebrews 13, 12 and following. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For we here have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, that is the eternal body in its completion and in its perfection. We have no continuing city here, he is saying, but we seek one to come, the fulfillment of the final building of the church of Jesus Christ, the eternal city of God. In Revelation chapter 3, John tells us that the people of God are the city of God, as well as the pillars in the temple of God, where the name of God is written. Notice what he says. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, in the first instance, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the overcomer. We only overcome in him. But this is still talking about an eternal entity. So whenever the scripture refers to the temple of God or the city of God, we are to recognize an eternal substance which identifies the redeemed of God. So, who is God referring to as the he in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 7? Notice what it says. He, now historically, David's thinking Solomon. But God is looking beyond that one generation after David. The he is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne, the majesty the dominion, the sovereignty, the ruling power, the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice the forever there. Solomon's kingdom did not last forever, but Christ's does. So it is the Lord Jesus that is the seed of David who has been commissioned and who will be successful in the establishment of the temple and in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now let's consider for a moment some of the details of this pronouncement. Number one, Jesus is the seed of David. Notice John seven forty and following. Many of the people therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scriptures said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Notice, the seed of David. Jesus is the seed of David. Paul and Peter confirm this fact in Romans chapter 1 verse 3 concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And in 2 Timothy 2.8, 
Paul says this, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Second point here, He shall build, notice he shall, again, whenever the word shall is used, it's an absolute, it's going to happen. He shall build God's house. He's not going to fail. He will establish it, he will complete it, he will perfect it. He shall build God's house. So the shall is a word which means that there is an absolute certainty that this something is going to take place, it's guaranteed. Thirdly, the establishment of this house will be for the name of God. He establishes the house for one purpose, for the name of God. And this means that once this house is established, it's established on the authority of God, and its commission is to proclaim the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of Christ. That's the purpose. So whenever we think about going forth with the gospel of God, we are also going forth, not so much Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and not even repent, but repent because the Christ of God is the sovereign king of the universe, and you are responsible and accountable to him. So the gospel really centers around the majesty of God. And this is why when Jesus rose from the grave, he stated that all authority, notice, all authority was given him. And that the body of believers would go in the authority of his conquering name. So whenever the phrase, in my name, is found, it means upon the authority of God, upon the majesty of God, upon the legitimate sovereignty of God. And this is why Jesus warns that many will come in his name, but will actually be false prophets. Luke 21 and verse 8. And he said, Jesus speaking, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, in my authority, saying that they are coming in my authority, saying I am Christ, or rather, not saying I am Christ, but saying I'm a Christian, or I come with the Christian gospel of Christ. And the time draweth near, go ye not therefore after them. Go ye not therefore after them. When they come with a different gospel, what is the commandment? Don't stand there and hang out with them if they're saying I'm a Christian and I'm going in the name of the Lord and yet they're false prophets. Don't go after them. Don't learn from them. Don't talk to them. Evangelize them. Rebuke them. Call them to repentance, but do not follow them. Go ye not therefore after them. This phrase is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses is told of a prophet that will come with the authority of God pointing prophetically to the Lord Jesus Christ not to the false prophets. In verse 19 and 20 God tells Moses almost the same thing. Notice what he says. Deuteronomy 18, 19 and following. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name according to my authority, I will require it of him, but the prophet which shall presume, notice, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my authority, in my name, which I have not commanded him, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. So don't go following prophets that are condemned to die by the word of the Lord. And this should put all ministers on notice. Everyone that assumes to go in the name of the Lord, every one of them should be on notice if they fail to expound in their exposition of the gospel the magisterial authority and power of the only legitimate God and King of the universe to bear upon their people 
and the world at large, if they don't do this faithfully, they will be brought under God's judgment resulting in death. But that death is not simply death. Not simply physical death. But the second death of eternal damnation. Fourthly, next God says that not only will Christ's house be built and his kingdom established, but his throne will be established. And this points again back to his power and his authority, his rulership. He is the legitimate ruler of nations. And this is why we read King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the king over all of the kings that are subsequent under him. He's the Lord over all of the lords. The kings of the earth are to kiss the sun. This theme of Christ's imperial power and authority is found throughout the Old Testament, which is why the apostles should not have been surprised when Christ gave the Great Commission after the resurrection in Matthew 28, stating that all power and authority is given to him. As early as Genesis 1, light was victorious over the darkness. It was already the anticipation of God that he would bring the light to be conquering over the darkness. Then in Genesis 3, we see the seed of the woman taking dominion victory over the seed of the wicked by conquering it, by destroying it, by crushing its headship. Because that's what man wants. Man wants headship. Man wants authority. Man wants magisterial power. Genesis 49 goes on to speak of Judah as having a king's scepter pointing to Christ's magisterial position and power. Throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and moving into the historical books, the Psalter and the prophets, the thread of Christ's power and authority as the king of nations is, is so clear, so obvious as the central focus of the scriptures to the point of becoming that gospel message the central aspect of Scripture in the same way as the theme of the covenant and the atonement. You know, the churches today, they focus on the atonement. Jesus paid for our sins. It's a wonderful thing. But is that the message? Is that the comprehensive message of the gospel? And to miss this comprehensive message of Christ's legitimate authority, sovereign majesty, is to misunderstanding the entirety of the biblical meaning. Now David understood this. And as a king over Israel, he understood what authority was all about. And understanding the position that Messiah would take, David writes this, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords of authority, in other words, of, of magisterial power from us. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king. Notice, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion to declare his majesty so that the kings of the earth would finally bow before the majesty of Christ. Now in Psalm 110, which is the one psalm that is quoted most in the New Testament, we read this. Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. 
Notice again, the authority, the rulership. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in thine authority, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head all because he is the sovereign king of the universe. And so the psalmist elaborates on the ministerial and magisterial authority of the Lord Christ as prophet, priest, and king throughout the psalms, but especially in Psalm 96 which is called the enthronement psalm, pointing to the time when Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the king and the magisterial psalm of the Psalter, all pointing to the reality of Christ's kingly lordship and the dynasty that he will build through his people. And that's what Christ is doing in the New Testament. He's building his dynasty. And to miss these truths is to misunderstand all that Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. God then continues to detail certain stipulations to this enthronement in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Samuel 7. Notice what he says. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before thee. First, God establishes the father-son relationship with the declaration, I will. This is an absolute certainty that cannot be neglected. I will be his father. That could never change. Therefore, this father-son relationship is inviolate. Secondly, God establishes the conditions that are covenantal in nature. Notice what he says. As a father, and as he being my son, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. In other words, there will be very particular consequences for disobedience. This is how we are taught and this is how we teach. The Reverend V. Philip Long explains it this way. He says, quote, With respect to David's offspring... Yahweh makes a string of remarkable pronouncements involving an established kingdom, a throne forever, a father-son relationship that will include both discipline if needed and unremitting love. The significance of this father-son relationship is realized to a degree in the special relationship Yahweh establishes with the Davidic kings, but is fully realized only in Christ. Now what is curious about these stipulations is that the punishment incurred for disobedience seems to only involve the chastening from wicked men and not any of the other possible consequences listed in Deuteronomy 28. And I believe this is because Christ's chastisement for taking upon himself the sin of his people was to be from wicked men. But if you really think about who crucified the Christ, it wasn't historically... We know it was the wicked men, but who really crucified the Christ? His elect, because he was only crucified for the elect. The chastening language of the rod 
and the stripes of men used in verse 14 points us to the sufferings that Christ had to undergo only in behalf of his people. To chasten with the rod is to chasten with the law of God, which is what Christ had to be chastened with, since as the sin bearer, he was under the curse of the law, he was guilty of the law, not because of himself, but because he took upon himself our sin, and he was made a curse for his people. And this is why Paul says to the church at Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And in Galatians 3.13, he explains this. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I remember many, many years ago, I told a young congregation member that Christ was made a curse for us, and he was so offended by that, that he left the church. He couldn't bear the thought that Christ, the holy God, was made a curse for us. But I told him that if he wasn't made a curse for us, we would still be under the curse. Isaiah identifies the torment of Christ by using similar language of 2 Samuel 7, 14 and Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he, speaking of the Christ, hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The stripes of men. Peter picks up on this chastisement, making reference to the stripes that the Lord had to endure in 1 Peter 2.24 who, speaking of Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. The reference to stripes goes back to the law of God in Deuteronomy 25. Psalm 89 is almost a repeat of much of God's declaration in 2 Samuel 7. Note the similarity of the two portions of Scripture clearly pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 89, verse 9 and following. Notice the similarity of the language. Then thou speakest in a vision to thy Holy One and saist, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before him, and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, in the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. 
My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever. Notice, speaking of Christ, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven. Salah. Notice the same language, speaking of David, speaking of Christ, speaking of the church, how this is going to be a happening once the Christ comes to establish his kingdom at the incarnation. Now consider for a moment the greatness of the mercy of God as a loving father. And this is why when the apostles asked, Lord, how shall we speak? They did not, he did not say, he did not say, address God as God. He did not say, God, call upon God. No, he said, our father. He said, address God as father. Consider for the moment then, the greatness of the mercy of God as our loving father. Verse 15 of 2 Samuel 7, But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul. Notice he goes back to Saul, whom I put away before thee. Now in this verse, God is swearing a covenant oath. He's swearing a promise. He's making a promise that his eternal mercy, no matter what comes to pass, will never be taken from the Lord Jesus and by association his body, the church. Notice, if you are a child of God, you already have the new birth. You already have eternal life. You already have the spirit, the spirit of eternal life. You will be with Christ after you die. If you sin, God will chasten you. He will beat you down. He will humble you, but He will not depart from you. He will not take His mercy from you as He did with Saul. So His mercy will never be taken not only from the Lord Jesus Christ, but the church of Jesus Christ. And by this declaration, God is establishing a covenant relationship with Christ and His church for the declaration of His divine supremacy over all nations through the advancement and establishment of His kingdom. But, but note, just note how God is also making a clear division between Saul and David. Notice He, he just slid that in there. I'm not going to do it like I did with Saul. He's pointing right back to Saul. And He's making a distinction between Saul and David. We might even say, in fact, I believe God is saying this, in the same way as Adam rebelled and failed, so too did Saul rebel and fail. And in the same way that David was faithful and victorious, so too is Christ the faithful witness and he will be the victorious king. So not only Saul and David, but Adam and Christ. Here God promises not to remove his hand of mercy and grace from David as he did with Saul. A great comfort. Now consider the result of this tremendous covenant stipulation. Verse 16, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. By this verse, I cannot see how theologians posit that Christ at the end fails. That at the end, the kingdom collapses. That the apostasy is so great, there's this Armageddon. Thy kingdom shall be established. Thy kingdom shall be established. Thy kingdom shall be established forever. Thy throne shall be established forever. David's throne will be established dynastically 
by his generations that will come after him. That was the promise. And that generation continues all the way through the birth of Christ. Now there are two dimensions here that must be realized. The one, David's earthly and temporal lineage. The other, Christ's eternal spiritual lineage. Both of these, however, are established on earth, in time, and within the confines of history. They are, however, different. David's temporal, earthly, generational lineage is actually the shadow, while the Lord's eternal spiritual lineage and generational legacy is the substance. Now, as we shall see later on, David's generational lineage did not endure, while Christ did and forever will. Notice verse 17, According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. This was the message that was given to the shepherd king, David, by the prophet Nathan, under the direct commandment of God. Now, consider, and let me put it this way, consider with incredible wonder, amazement, how David receives this vision. After hearing this, an incredible thing, David is now processing this. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? Adonai Yahweh, the covenant God who is my master, who am I? And what is my house that thou hast brought me to this point in history, in my life, hitherto? Herein is the humility of a great man of God. At this point in his life, we find David a humble man. Know what David doesn't say and what he doesn't do. David doesn't begin to publish this incredible news. He doesn't run out and tell his friends, hey, look what God is doing and look at my ministry and all of that stuff. No. Look what God's going to do. He's going to build me a house and my children's children's children. Look how wonderful I am. Secondly, he doesn't even thank God, which I found very interesting. He is so awestruck, he doesn't even stop by saying, oh, thank you, Lord. As if to say, I, I'm so befuddled at what you're telling me, I, I didn't even think to thank you. He doesn't even thank God for such an incredible blessing. One might think that, that, that very odd that a man of David's caliber might not begin by thanking God, and yet he doesn't. He asked the question, Who am I? Wait a minute, stop right there. Are you making a mistake? Who am I? Furthermore, number three, David doesn't plan a great celebration. He doesn't call for the fatted calf to be slain or for the Psalms to be sung. He doesn't even immediately write a song commemorating this great occasion. Fourthly, he certainly doesn't boast of what a wonderful man he is or how he deserves such a great honor. He says, yeah, well, I did, you know, I did uh, get ordained by... Samuel and you know Nathan's talking to me and I'm such a great guy no no none of that fifthly he does not consider at all that these blessings were a result in any way shape or form of David's exploits of David's fidelity throughout his life especially during his trials with Saul he doesn't say well I get it I've been faithful I, 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 I beat Saul. Yeah, I, I get it. I know why you're doing that. No, 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 no. He has none of these things. He asks God very clearly. He says, why me? He enters into his secret chamber and he prays. And he asks God why. 
And David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? He addresses God as the sovereign covenant Lord, Adonai Yahweh, but he doesn't address God as the sovereign covenant Lord only once. He addresses him as the sovereign covenant God seven times during his discussion. David first asks, Who am I? Now this tells us that David knew his own heart. He knew he was undeserving of this incredible blessing. He had an acute sense of who he was by nature and that is what kept him humble. Now, brothers and sisters, once we forget who we are by nature, that fallen, feeble, fickle nature, sinful nature, once we forget that we are deserving of nothing, Once we forget who we are by nature and that we deserve nothing, we're in dire straits. But David goes in and he sits before God and he wonders what in the world made God call him to such a great event. But David asks something else. Not only does he ask God why him, but why choose his house to establish that royal dynasty? David must have known. I will have to give him credit that he knew that he had taken some wives that maybe he shouldn't have taken. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? For God to call upon anyone to establish a royal dynasty up until this point was absolutely unheard of. Because throughout the book of the Judges, whenever a judge sought to establish his own dynasty, he was refused and all of his attempts were frustrated. That's what happened with Saul. He wanted to establish his own dynasty. Saul sought to establish his own house as God's royal earthly dynasty, but he was frustrated. And so David is saying, well, how is it that that I'm so blessed? How is it that I would gain such a legacy, this divine inheritance of a dynasty? This was so amazing and confusing to David that he had to ask, why me and why my house? Here's a man so astonished. What we would say today, his his mind just exploded in astonishment because of the Lord's blessing and as to just how far the Lord has brought him. Remember, from very humble beginnings to this point that he now sits before God in absolute amazement. The next verse is as incredible as it tells us even more about the shepherd king. David says in verse 19, And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. David is actually saying that all that God had done up to this point for David, for God, because he could do anything, what's impossible with man is is possible with God. It's not impossible for God to do all these things. It was a very simple thing. In other words, he's saying, it required no effort at all because thou art God. And I think we have to start thinking about God like that. God can do the impossible. And so by this statement, David recognized the majesty, the power of God, that he could do anything he wanted with ease, even taking a shepherd boy from nothing to make him the king of Israel establishing a royal dynasty and making him a great type of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. David concludes his initial thought by asking, But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come, 
And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now David understands that what God is establishing through David's lineage is an everlasting duration. So he uses the phrase, a great while to come, or a great time to come. His concern, however, is, am I the kind of man that you really want as your king? Are my children really the types of men that you really want to advance your kingdom? We shall consider that question next when we return to our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.